If you were tonight, and I know you'll not be, but if you were reading out of the NIV or out of the ESV or way back in time, the RSV or the RV, a lot of the modern versions you will not be reading. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Because this particular sentence does not appear. It has been expunged from the versions and others that I have mentioned. Well, a preacher that I would rely on and read a lot of would be Guy H. King, would have been an evangelical Anglican preacher from the beginning of the 20th century. Normally very reliable, thoroughly evangelical, no doubt about that, but he fell of the deception that was generated by the new version editors. And when he came to give a lecture on this text tonight, Matthew 6 and verse 13, he said, it seems probable that our Lord did not speak the words. Number one, they are not in that other prayer in Luke 11. Number two, they are not in the revised version of our present passage. Number three, they are not in the oldest manuscripts. Well, that's what he had been told. But then he began to wobble and reconsider and backtrack and find reverse gear to a large degree. And I'm thankful for that because he went on to say, I think we must say that in spite of what has been adduced, the matter is not entirely settled. There is argument on the other side. Though the RV does not include the words in the text, it does say in the margin, many authorities, some ancient but with variations, add, for thine is the kingdom. And now we're coming to the truth of the matter because many that's what they admit here. Many authorities, some ancient, they do include the words that we have in our authorized version. And so King concluded, so perhaps after all, they are the Master's own words. In any case, they seem a very fitting climax, the family's rallying cry, motto, and goal. Now, I'll take his final sentence, and I will definitely underline the importance of that. Because what we have here is, in Matthew 6, verse 13, the second half of it, we have the family's rallying cry and motto and also their goal. But before we get into that, just on a point of order, let me flag up the confusion when you listen to the voices of the new version you end up not being sure what is the Word of God and what is not the Word of God, what should appear in the Bible and what should not appear in the Bible, and they're engendering that confusion. And if we adopt the philosophies of those revisers of the Scriptures of truth, we're left in a whirligig of total confusion. And yet, as I read and you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the verse 33, God is not the author of confusion. And if we were to chase these words out of the text of Scripture, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, amen, then what we do is we take up and we throw out 
totally without warrant, I might add. We are throwing out one of the greatest testimonies in the Bible to the omnipotent and eternal power of Almighty God. And we're not going to be doing that. So we turn to it, and we examine it tonight as we find it in Matthew 6 and verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. What do we have in these words? Well, the sentence that we have here in Matthew 6, 13, it emphasizes the absolute and eternal authority of God. For thine is the kingdom. And here what we have underlined is this, God's right to rule. Thine is the kingdom doesn't belong to anybody else. The reins of authority and power are not held in any other hand, only God's. His is this kingdom. John Trapp, the old Puritan preacher, he explained the words like this, that is, all sovereignty is originally and transcendently invested in God only in Him. Now, men don't recognize that today. Men reject all thought of submitting to the government and the commandments and the authority of God, and they think that the source of authority rests with them, resides in them, depends on their mind and their arm, and whatever they take in their, their heads to do, then we are going to dictate. We are going to set, set the rules here. We are going to be the bosses. We will determine what happens. It is our word that goes. That's what man always says in his pride, and this world is full of that today. And politicians all around are puffed up with their own importance. And people, and you will know them in certain parties, who in the past would have taken a, a stand that tallied with the Bible's verdict on homosexuality, for example, and abortion, for another example, with the power of a party pushing down upon them, have changed their views, done so publicly without any adequate explanation, but have done a U-turn on these fundamental issues. Because the pride of man in their mind is trumping the power of God. And that's how it was back in the days of, for example, Pharaoh in Exodus 5 and 2. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Well, that's what you think, Pharaoh. Psalm 2, the verse 2 and 3. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And again, that's what they thought, because the God who was in the heavens, he said he'd laugh at them, and he would put them in derision. 
In Luke 19, the verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And what we have said back there, recorded in the gospel of Luke, so it is today. We have an echo of that all around our society, from every part of it, men and women refusing to submit to the authority of God. Now, that is incredibly foolish. The truth is, man can vaunt himself as much as he pleases, but that does not change the real situation one iota doesn't weigh a gram in the scales of the Almighty. Man is still just and always will be a little understudy, a puppet, virtually a a clown prince, because it is God who is in complete control of His own kingdom, and He will set up exactly whom He pleases. Man like this know nothing of what God has said in Proverbs 8 and 16, for example, by me, princes rule, and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. Isaiah 3 and 4, and I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. Isaiah 41 and verse 2, who raised up the righteous man from the east, called him to his foot, gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings. He gave them as the dust to his sword and as driven stubble to his bow. And you can compare as well Romans 13 and 1. There's a classic case in the Bible, of course, where this truth is underlined and highlighted and emphasized in every which way that you could conceive of. And that is in the experience of one of the proudest monarchs that ever lived upon this earth, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And if we could look in over the great, impressive, majestic walls of his kingdom of Babylon, we'd see Nebuchadnezzar, and he's strutting around his kingdom, and he's puffed up with his pride, and he's congratulating himself on his successes, his prowess, his skill, his wisdom, his authority, his power. He is the bee's knees. Nobody like him. Daniel 4 and 30 describes that attitude. The king spake and said, "'Is not this?' Great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty. So he's saying, I'm Nebuchadnezzar, the master builder of great Babylon. It said that the inscriptions that remain out of that once colossal city clearly show Nebuchadnezzar's boasting. It's traveled down through the centuries on brick and stone and marble and plaster alike are the titles of this proud king of the Babylonians. In fact, they reckon that nine out of every ten bricks that came from Mesopotamia bore his name stamped upon them. Nebuchadnezzar, he was determined, I'm going to leave my mark on this great city. They'll be seeing my name everywhere they look, a man swollen with pride. And yet God had given him everything he had. And we have the reminder of that in Daniel 5 and verse 18 through 21. 
And God was very gracious to this proud man because He spoke to him in warning. He used a dream initially in Daniel 2, and the verse 36 through 38, where the interpretation is told by Daniel, Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven, but listen to the reminder that's in here, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. So in all of your splendor, Nebuchadnezzar, you can trace it back to the hand of God. Another dream had to be given. In Daniel chapter 4, a big red light of warning shining again over Nebuchadnezzar's life. And then in this one, God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar, judgment is going to be executed upon you for your pride and your sin and your wickedness. And the vision that he got to him is of a large and a fruitful tree flourishing, but then being cut down and only a stump remains just sticking up out of the ground. And we'll isolate one verse, verse 26 in Daniel 4, and whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. After that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Now, did Nebuchadnezzar respond to the warnings? No, he didn't, at least not in the way that he should have done. His only response was to become more vile, because what does he do? He puts up a golden image of himself, and he commands that image to be worshipped. In Daniel 3, the verse 1 and 4 to 6, quite literally what he's doing is he is taking on God. I'm a better alternative, he's saying. And he pours his wrath out on the children of God who refuse to go along with this gross idolatry. Those Hebrew children, Daniel 3 and verse 13, then he boasted that the Lord, even the Lord, won't be able to stop me. I'm invincible. Daniel 3 and 15, but if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the CMR into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is that God? that shall deliver you out of my hands. Well, he was going to have his question answered, wasn't he? When he was faced with a statement of God's sovereign power again, he became even more furious. In Daniel 3, the verse 17 to 19, but the story was only starting at these points. Twelve months later, God gave him space, He's strolling along in the gardens of his palace again, and then, in an instant, as he was praising himself for his achievements, the wrath of God fell on him like lightning from heaven, scorched him, shriveled him, reduced him to the level, to the condition of a beast, exactly as those visions and dreams had told him would happen. Daniel 4, verse 31 to 33, you can read about it there, and then Daniel 5, verse 18 to 21, and this proud Nebuchadnezzar, the big totem pole in Babylon, came toppling down. Speaking to one of his descendants, Belshazzar, 
Daniel looked back to what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar, O thy king. The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would he slew and whom he would he kept alive and whom he would he set up and whom he would he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and that he appointed over it whomsoever he will. An unforgettable lesson in the sovereignty of God, a display of His awesome power telling Him and through Him us there is a living, reigning, sovereign God who governs, who acts, who intervenes, who erupts into the history of man and of His church, who can assure us God is still on the throne. He doesn't merely exist. He reigns. Psalm 103, verse 19, The Lord hath prepared His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom ruleth over all. David said, 1 Chronicles 29, 11, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is Thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and Thou art exalted as head above all. Or Psalm 29 and 10, The Lord sitteth upon the flood. Yea, the Lord sitteth king forever. And so we are back to Matthew 6 and the verse 13, for thine is the kingdom. What a blessed truth that is. What calm and comfort it pours into a distressed mind. What strength it conveys to a broken soul. Hopkins Rees was a missionary to China. And he told a story, at, a story that affected one of his converts in that country. When she became a Christian, she had to suffer a lot at the hands of her heathen relatives. They beat her. They locked her up in a room. They tried to starve her into surrender and out of Christ. But how did that poor woman sustain herself? By the thought that her God was in heaven and that everything would come right in the end. You see, Mr. Rees, the missionary, he had translated an old Welsh hymn into Chinese, and the last line of every verse of that hymn ran like this, My father's at the helm, and he is. So let not your heart be troubled, because your father, he is at the helm. Martin Luther even when the storm clouds were all around him. He used to delve into Psalm 46 and say to his sidekick Melanchthon, come let's sing the 46th Psalm and let the devil do his worst. 
and those events around us might appear like dust flying in a storm. But that's a false impression because the rule of the omnipotent extends over all things. At all times, nothing is left into the lap of chance. All things are directed and dictated by infinite wisdom. And if there's one thing that goes down as a black mark against the church of Jesus Christ today, then it has to be its abject failure to start with, to focus in upon, to believe with all its heart this most foundational truth. Our God is sovereign. Thine is the kingdom. Do we believe that? Are we clinging to that? Maybe not as firmly as we might or we should. What is our belief in God? We need to weigh it. We need to ascertain what it is. We need to check it out, need to measure it, need to study it, need to make sure that we are standing here on the ground of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thine is the kingdom. And remember that that kingdom of God is advanced through the prayers and the labors of His people. And so you have the build-up to that in Matthew 6 and verse 10. That should encourage, that should inspire us, and at the same time, humble us and strike fear into our souls. The kingdom is advanced by the prayers and the labors of God's people, the absolute and eternal authority of God. But the same sentence goes on. And it brings our attention to the ability of God, the absolute and eternal ability of God. For thine is the kingdom and the power. Now, it's good to have both together here because not only does God have authority, He has the might, the power to uphold that authority, to exercise that authority. I mean, some men have kingdoms, but they're really only puppet kings. They don't have the power to do anything to change anything in the country or do anything to help their subjects. Our current prime minister, do people even know his name? What's he done? What's he achieved? What will any achieve? Outside of the power of God, man may have kingdoms, may have positions, but lack the power to do anything for anyone. But that's not God. He has both the kingdom and the power, the authority and also the ability very interesting incident recorded in 2 Kings. Chapter 6, verse 25 to 27, there was a great famine, we read there, in Samaria. And behold, they besieged it until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver, and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. And as the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help, my lord, O king! And he said... If the Lord do not help thee, when shall I help thee? 
out of the barn floor or out of the wine press. And he was saying, these places are empty. I have no resources. I can do nothing for you. Only the Lord can do anything. And of course he can, for he has the authority and also the ability. And we are back to Nebuchadnezzar just to keep the threads of the story going there because we find that once the awesome power of God fell upon him, brought him low. We read in Daniel 4, the verse 34 and 35, how Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges God's power. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and my understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? And that's exactly what our Lord in Matthew 6 and 13 is speaking about when he declares, For thine is the kingdom and the power forever. Amen. None can stay his hand. In other words, man is powerless to resist the determination and the workings of God. Man's like chaff. But in his folly, he determines, see, when the wind blows, I'm going to stay standing here. I'm not going to move from my ground. And he digs in his chaffy heels. And he really believes he can do it and stand and succeed in rebellion against God. But the wind comes along and no amount of determination on the part of the chaff can stop it being caught up and carried away and deposited wherever the wind wants to drop it. And so I remember what our Savior said in Matthew 28 and verse 18, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. I'm encouraged by what I read in the old Psalm, in Psalm 110 and verse 3, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth, in Acts 1 and 8. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. And this power, it is unleashed through the prayers of the people of God. What strength there is in supplication. No doubt you and I will think immediately of Isaiah 40. The verse 28 through to 31, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary, there is no searching of his understanding. But listen, he giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, the young men shall utterly fall, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. The power of prayer. I see Mary 
Queen of Scots, trembling in the palace at Holyrood. What's wrong, O Queen? And fear darts out of her eyes as she gives us the reason. I fear the prayers of John Knox more than an army of 10,000 men. David Brainerd, missionary to the American Indians in the 18th century, did his greatest work in prayer. For some time he was in the depths of the forest alone, not able to speak. The language of the Indians, but he spent whole days in prayer. What was he praying for? Well, he knew he couldn't reach the savages the way things were. He couldn't communicate with them. And if he wanted to speak at all, he must find someone who at least vaguely could interpret his thoughts. And so we realize that anything I'm ever going to do here is totally dependent on the power and intervention of God. And so we spent whole days praying simply that the power of the Holy Ghost would come down upon Him so unmistakably that the people wouldn't be able to stand before Him. What was the answer? You'll find it rare. On one occasion, he preached through a drunken interpreter, a man that was so intoxicated he could hardly balance himself on his feet. That was the best Brainerd could get. Yet scores of Indians were converted to Christ through that sermon. We can't account for that other than to say it was the tremendous power of God behind his man, the missionary. It was God answering prayer. After Brainerd was dead, William Carey read Brainerd's life story, and he ended up going to India. Robert Murray McSheehan up in Dundee read Brainerd's diary, and he went to evangelize the Jews. Henry Martin read his journal, and he went to India too. That hidden life of intense communion with God in the closet, doors closed, heart poured out, was the key to the power unleashed through the labors of David Brainard. And it's still that way today. The best thing that we can do is to throw ourselves on His almighty arms to commit our cares, the burdens of the church, the burden of the work of God, into His everlasting strength. And we read in Deuteronomy 33, verse 27 to 29, do we not? The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms, and He shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, Destroy them. Israel shall dwell in safety alone. The fountain of Jacob shall be upon a land of corn and wine. Also His heavens shall drop down June. Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people, see by the Lord, the shield of thy help, and who is the sword of thy excellency? And thine enemies shall be found liars unto thee, and thou shalt tread upon their high places. What does Paul remind us? In Ephesians 3 and 20, that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. 
that he will, as Paul was convinced, 2 Timothy 1 and 14, he was able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. For thine is the kingdom and the power, the absolute and eternal authority of God, the absolute and eternal ability of God, and finally, the absolute and eternal admiration of God. For thine is the kingdom and the power, notice, and the glory forever. Amen. Where is this glory fitting in here? The glory is the honor that flows from His government, His authority, His ability. And because of the exercise of this, men see it and they magnify Him. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. My existence on this earth, and same with yours from A to Z, is to the praise of the glory of His grace. Do you remember what the Pharisees said? Sometimes the words were good enough, though the intent was always poor and wrong. But they did say, give God the praise to that blind man just healed by Jesus in John 9 and 24. Now, we have no dispute with the command. Jesus is God. So certainly, give God the praise. He's worthy to be praised for His work of salvation, sanctification, sustenance. It's all His. I think of the first question and answer in our shorter catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And as we work our way through this weary old pilgrimage here on earth, our song ought to be, Psalm 115 verse 1, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto Thy name give glory for Thy mercy and for Thy truth's sake. And then when we reach the end of the pilgrimage up in heaven, with those innumerable harps around us, with the voices of angels, with all of the timbrels of the saints, the tide of holy melody will rise, and it will surge around the throne, and it will be glory to the Lamb that was slain. Isaiah 42, and yet I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Romans eleven thirty six. Paul tells us, for off him and through him and to him. Nebuchadnezzar, are you listening? Wicked man today and all of your pride, are you hearing? For off him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 1 31, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Which is why we sing, praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet thy tribute bring. Which is why we endorse the spirit of our former queen in many years ago, Victoria, who said she longed for the day when she would take her crown and cast it at the feet of the King of Kings. This text really is a doxology 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's a good way to finish prayer, is it not? Not just this prayer, but any prayer. In praise. With a doxology. Reminding ourselves that all that we have prayed for, whatever the petition if we're praying in the will of God, we're praying to a God who can fulfill that petition because to Him alone belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory, and it belongs to Him forever. So our devotion, beginning with prayer, should end in praise. That's the pattern here. And of course, praise will follow when prayer is answered. I remind you in closing of that familiar text in Psalm 50 and 15, and call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. As one has said, what a man wins by prayer, he will wear with thankfulness. And it ends with the term, Amen. It's just sitting there. It's a Hebrew term, and it's not translated in our English Bible. The Hebrew word is there, just sitting on the page. It's a note of certain and earnest asservation, a word that you probably have not come across. It means it's a solemn declaration. God is speaking. He is promising a word of assent, a word of assurance. It's a voice of one that believes and that expects he shall have his prayers granted. And that's the way our Savior teaches us here to pray. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. There are some poor people who need to get this line back into their Bibles. Let's bow in prayer.